At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. These days, work is in trouble. We've outsourced most of our manufacturing to other countries. And with that, we sent away good jobs and our capability to make things. American Giant is a clothing company that's pushing back against this tide. They make all kinds of high-quality clothing and activewear, like sweatshirts, jeans, dresses, jackets, and so much more, right here in the USA. So when you buy American Giant, you create jobs in towns and cities across the country. And jobs bring pride. Purpose. They stitch people together. If all that sounds good to you, visit American-Giant.com and get 20% off your first order when you use code STAPLE20 at checkout. That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com with promo code STAPLE20. It's time for our journey to begin. From the time of the ancient Egyptians until today, many people have been cat fanciers. You are such a person. Your cat is a big, beautiful black animal. His appearance is much like a panther as a cat. Your pet is a very friendly one. Each day as you come home from work, he shows you his affection by purring and rubbing his sleek fur against your limbs as you reach down to scratch his head. Until one day. Welcome to OK Talk. I'm Clinton. Matt Stoker is on assignment. My guest tonight is Mike Mays, the Texas Krypton Hunter, an author, a teacher, and he just so happens to sit on the board of the North American Wood Ape Conservancy. Hi, Sasquatch. We spoke about many things tonight. Mike was very gracious with his time. In this conversation, we do in fact discuss the Wood Ape and the North American Wood Ape Conservancy's ongoing study in the Wachita Mountain Range in Oklahoma. But we also discuss some of the crazier stories of cryptids and legends of Texas and the big black cats of the Lone Star State. Once again, thanks to Mike for his time, and I hope you enjoy the Texas Cryptid Hunter, Mike Mays. I reached Mike at his home via the miracle of telephonic communication. What was it that got a college athlete like yourself from Parties Texas Part, Golden Triangle? What got you into the uh, cryptid scene? Well, um... Like a lot of guys in my age group, um, you know, we were right there at that prime age when that Legend of Boggy Creek movie came out, and that's certainly uh, something I never forgot, you know, that scene where that that guy reaches in the window, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. uh, uh, made a big impression. Uh, but 
I guess, like I was telling you, I grew up, kind of split my time between the Piney Woods and the Southeast Texas, and uh, grew up in Big Thicket country. I don't know if you're familiar with the Big Thicket National Preserve uh, down that way. Yes, sir. Um, and there were always stories. Um, uh, it went, you know, there were various names. Uh, uh, the Wild Man, the Raggedy Man, Old Mossy Back, you know, these were terms that were used to describe basically, you know, the classic boogeyman, swamp monster um, uh, that supposedly roamed around out there. And, you know, I always heard those stories. They, they always interested me. And, um, uh, the, you know, the term Bigfoot never was mentioned. You know, it just it never occurred to me or, I guess, anyone else down as far as my friends or family or anybody at the time that, that what we were hearing stories about might possibly be the same thing that people were seeing and talking about out in California in the Pacific Northwest. Um, so when I finally kind of put that together, uh, you know, it just it's just something that never left me. You know, I, I don't know if, if it's a sign of immaturity that I never grew out of it or... Or, or maybe I've just got a more curious bent than a lot of people do about just kind of odd things. You know, I, I, I feel like there, I felt like there was something to it. Every Indian tribe across the, you know, North America had a name for these things, you know, and that seemed, you know, I've got a lot of respect for, for the, you know, those, those peoples that were here first and, and their way of life. They, they knew what was here and, um, and they all had a name for it. And so that, that was, uh, something that really struck me as, as kind of being at the very least open-minded to being maybe 51 to 55% convinced there was something to it, you know, when I first got into it. Mm-hmm. But um, the thing that really, I think, made the biggest impression was uh, uh, was one of those time periods when I was up in East Texas with my grandparents in St. Augustine. My, my grandmother loved going to the, the picture show, the movies. And um, the only time that my grandfather ever let her go was when we were up there, my brothers and I, because, you know, it was just a waste of money, you know, to him. But <laughs> right. when, when the boys were there, he'd, he'd let her take us, you know. Um, and I don't remember what the show was that day, but there was a short that came on before the main feature, whatever it was. And basically it was, uh, the Patterson Gimlin film. People were talking about it and, um, kind of a very short documentary that featured the footage. And, um, this would have been, it would not have been brand new. That, that was of course shot in 1967. This would have been the early 70, maybe 73, 74, somewhere in that neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Um, but seeing that on the big screen, seeing this big thing walk across, you know, the big screen. And I remember vividly turning to my grandmother and asking her, I said, is, is that real? And her response was, well, that's what they're saying. And it just, you know, it just never left me. Um, now I got busy with school and chasing girls and playing basketball and, and all that stuff, but it was always something that, 
you know, I would read every book in the library on it. And, and you know, and other things, too. I, I think interest in one owns an interest in, in a lot of that stuff. And so whether it was, you know, the Yeti in, in the Himalayas or the Loch Ness Monster or, or Bigfoot in the Pacific Northwest, um, you know, just always had an interest. And it, it just never really left me, uh, even into adulthood. It's the mystery and adventure, you know? Well, that, that's true, and I, I tell people that a lot. You know, there's not a lot of uh, there's not a lot of adventure left in the world for regular working guys. You know, we it's it's kind of like that Jimmy Buffett song. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with it. A pirate looks at forty. <laughs> yeah, it's actually uh, uh, smack dab in the in the middle of a podcast a couple episodes okay, ago. Exactly. I just rolled well, the know, whole thing in there. Yeah, you know the, the you know the. Um, you know, the line about the occupational hazard being that my occupation's just not around. Indeed. And uh, that's kind of the deal. There's not a lot of adventure and, and uh, exploration and discoveries left to be made, but there are some. But it, you have to be, um, you have to have an eye to know what they are, and, and you have to be able to recognize um, that, of course, it's going to be something unconventional, you know, at this point. And something that a lot of people are going to scoff at. And, of course, if you look through history, a lot of the great discoveries or inventions, those guys were laughed at, scoffed at, were outcasts, and, you know, until they were proven right. And so you have to, you know, you want the adventure, it's there, but you got to be, you know, there's some stuff that goes with it that sometimes isn't all that much fun. Right. So <clears throat> now I, I, I like doing this real informal thing you know obviously we spent 30 minutes talking about high school sports and that's uh that's just kind of the way that i am um i wanted to say first of all um i really wanted to push the fact that you have a children's book Mm -hmm. called patty a sasquatch story and i wanted to tell everyone that was listening uh that I mean, if you're into it, if you have, and I really think it's a perfect gift, kid or adult alike. I mean, what a what a great thing that you could, you know, hand off to someone who has, shares a similar interest. Almost seems like it's uh, one of those books that, you know, a lot of those children's books they get recycled, and I don't think that uh-huh. that one would. And uh, can you real quick just uh, tell everyone where they could get that? Well, sure. There actually any any online bookseller has it. Uh, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Books a Million. Um, uh, I've even seen them up on eBay. You know, uh, where, where you can get them. Uh, they vary. The, the price fluctuates online depending on you know what's going on at the time. You know, so it was a small run, so there's not like tens of thousands of them sitting in a warehouse somewhere where they're selling them for $5. Do you still have That's some at the house? Um, I don't at the moment. I really? don't. I'm actually in need of having to uh, uh, to get a few. Uh, I like to keep a few on hand, you know, and uh, and I even sold my one holdback copy that, you know, generally I just want to have one myself. You know? Right. And I even uh, gave that one up because there was somebody that wanted one and they it was a birthday party or something for their kid and they needed it pretty quick. So I just went ahead and, 
and let them have that one. Uh, I just figured I would just order another one when I got the new batch in. But at the moment, I don't. Who published uh, it for you? Uh, it, it, it was a company called Author, Author House. It's actually a self-publishing kind of a Okay. Um, I got kind of a pretty, you know, pretty good deal on it. My the illustrator, it's a guy named Robert Swain, uh, brilliant. I mean, just yeah, wonderful. And uh, he just did Yeoman's work, but we kind of went in together. I, I, I pitched the idea to him at uh, um, uh, the North American Wood Ape Conservancy's last um, um, conference that we held in Tyler. As a matter of fact, we moved it to Dallas the last time we had it, but we had it in Tyler for years. And uh, he came was a speaker. He he does a, 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 a kind of a one-panel far side style Bigfoot-themed cartoon he calls Last Squatch. And so he came and he kind of presented some of that. He's got some books. Anyway, kind of pitched the idea of a book to him, and, and he was he was all in. He was very enthusiastic about it. And he did just yeoman's work. He, he did each page in the book it originally was on a – it's about a – um, not, I don't know exactly what the size of the, of, the, of the canvases were, but he basically did a big watercolor painting. It was about a about a 24 by 12 watercolor painting for each illustration in that book. And uh, I told him, you know, what my vision for it was was very colorful, very eye catching. Um, I remembered the book where the wild things are when I was a kid. And Heck just yeah. The illustrations that were in that, how they just didn't matter, you know. You know, the, the kindergartners they couldn't read a lick yet, but boy, they couldn't wait to, to get their hands on that book. There was always a waiting list for that book in the elementary school library. And, and so that's kind of what I'm after. I want, I want the pictures to just be beautiful for pre-readers or very very young readers, and hopefully the story would be would hold up enough to keep the attention of. Uh, the slightly older kids, and then, then of course we did a section in the back. I, I don't know if you're familiar with that, but it was uh, we called it the Bigfoot Insider, and it was just uh, each illustration and each page we had things that that Robert and I discussed that he put into his illustrations that were kind of um, unless you're kind of a Bigfoot. Uh, uh, expert or you you know you're really into it you wouldn't catch it so we it's almost like a uh, glossary style section in the back but it'll tell you on you know pages one and two there's three or four things here that this is why this is in that illustration because uh back back way back when you know this happened and uh so for example you know there's there's one where uh, patty the, the character of course which is named after the subject of the Patterson-Gimlin film, um, speaking around a tree, a guy who's running a bulldozer, and that's a nod to the uh, Jerry Crew mm-hmm. workers who were building the road through the Bluff Creek area back in the day, um, even prior to the film when the term Bigfoot first got coined. You know, so there were there were just all kinds of little things like that, and. and um, I don't know how familiar you are with the story that that we came up with, but um, it's basically the story of how this female Sasquatch came to be at the site 
at that time Roger, for Roger Patterson and Bob Ginlan to to shoot the video, yeah, shoot the film. Uh, you know, they've been their story's been talked about, you know, forever. Um, but you know, it just struck me one day that you know, no, I wonder, wonder why that animal was there. You know, how did it come to be there? And so we kind of wove on a. It's basically an ugly duckling story. I want people to understand, like, it's awesome, and it's it's not, you know, there's a lot of children's books that are really pretty, and they're like 12 pages long and have about mm-hmm. three words on each page. This thing's got 56 pages. It's a nice size. It's I mean, it's basically a coffee table size book. Right. And, right. Um, and, and if nothing else, I mean, you know, you have it at your... At your website, which is uh, TexasCryptidHunter.blogspot.com, which that's correct, yeah, which is one of my favorite reads. Um, I, I I just uh, I enjoy the way that you break down various stories, and uh, I appreciate that. I've, I've not yeah, I've been kind of on hiatus the last couple months, but uh, um, but yeah, it's something I've really enjoyed doing. Um, there's just, in case you hadn't noticed, there's a lot of craziness out there. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> and, I mean, so, um, I, that's kind of what I wanted to get into you with you next. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was kind of cracking up earlier today just looking around at some stuff, and I was I was laughing to myself about your, uh, your write-up on Bell Plain. And the fact that you have to stop down in the middle of that and be like, now some people may be like, well, this is a ghost story. It's not a cryptid story, but who doesn't like a good story? Well, sure. And this is one thing that I always tell people because we obviously have a lot of people who are interested in what we're doing thanks to uh, the fact that, you know, like Kathy being very generous with her time and getting Seth on and we have a lot of attention just about the Bigfoot stuff that we talk about, but I've told some people that have gotten contact with us whenever we've deviated from anything like that, that I've just been like, you know, how often are the times where there's some sort of a mystery of a cryptid in an area? And it's, you know, the reason that the area is reported to be haunted is because basically there's some sort of a monster there. It's not just, Mm -hmm. You know, it doesn't just mean that it's a ghost story, and even if it does, it doesn't matter. We're 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 about telling stories, but so I, right, and and that's one thing I've kind of inadvertently, and like I said, I've, I've taught history for years, uh, so I've always enjoyed that aspect of things. But I've become something of a folklore specialist during the course of all of this. That that kind of was a byproduct of writing the blog and looking into historical accounts and and one thing that I've I'd like to bring up from at least time to time are some of these old stories from Texas and, and other parts of the country where Bigfoot is not thought to be um, that predate um, all the hubbub that followed the uh, you know nineteen sixty seven when Patterson and Gimlin, you know, hit the world with their with their footage. Um, these stories were there. If you read the accounts of what happened, the behavior of whatever it was that was causing all the strangeness, uh, there are striking similarities to what today, if someone reported that, you automatically, oh, Bigfoot, that's a Bigfoot sighting. That's, 
or that's what he's saying anyway. You know, the, those stories are out there, and they go all the way back to the to the you know the indigenous peoples of of this country and and on this continent, and you know that that's what I'm interested in. You know, it's, in talking about you being into history and being a folklorist. And I think that is one of the things that we're going to look back and people who are able to hang on to the oral traditions are going to be such a valuable piece of our future because while the internet is terrific and you can certainly type anything up and find anything online, the way that stories are passed down orally, the pureness of that tradition from an area a lot of times it's hard to find a, a website that just has a bunch of folklore mm-hmm. legends. You know, you may find a website that's focused on one thing or another thing, but these are the kinds of things that I think that people that are into mystery and intrigue are are going to appreciate going forward and mm-hmm. certainly do now. And so I, I think that's terrific. I, I love the fact that, and you and I seem to be kind of alike in the liking mm-hmm. history and liking you know, <laughs> legend of certain areas. Let me ask you, uh, in speaking about Texas, so what's your favorite, what's your favorite specific cryptid or legend at, at present in Texas proper? Is it this? Sort of, of, histor- of a historical nature? Yeah, well, you know, you know, well, anything really. Well, okay, all right. I've got, I've got two. I'll give you one of each. I'll give you um, one of that's historical in nature. I'll give you a family one. Um, uh, historically, there's there's a um, a very at least regionally well known uh, story. Um, You'll hear it referred to as the Wild Woman of the Navidad. The uh, Navidad is a river down in South Texas, and um, this was documented by you know the historian of the folklorist of folklorists in Texas, Frank Doby, um, years and years ago. And uh, basically, there was a series of strange events that took place up and down this Navidad River. Um, over the course of several years, um, footprints were found, uh, sheds were raided, you know, corn cribs and, and things like this. Items were stolen. Uh, this thing, they called it the thing that came, I believe was the term that Dobie coined or, or that he used in his writings. The thing that comes is what the, the people called it. And there apparently are instances of it stepping over sleeping dogs and getting into these, these cabins and uh, taking a loaf of bread or, or food or, or some item. And um, two different sets of footprints were, were found at uh, different times together, uh, a larger pair and then a, a smaller pair. And so uh, people assumed you had a male and a female going about um, committing these acts of kind of petty larceny, for lack of a better term. Um, but they were able to get in and out with such uh, with such stealth that they developed almost this, you know, legend about them. That, and people began to wonder, you know, you know who were they? You know, what were they? Because, um, you know, 
know, they were literally taking their lives in their hands every time they entered a, a residence or came onto property. These were back in the days before 911, you know, this was 1800s. And um, finally, um, a, uh, uh, well, they, they, they thought they had kind of narrowed it down to, to a, a runaway slave or slaves, that uh, some escaped slaves. Um, and they they had found kind of a crude camp ground where someone had been staying. And so some of the guys uh, in the area had formed kind of a search party or a posse, whatever you want to call it. And, and they beat the bushes up and down in this this area up and down around the Navidad River. Now, personally, I think all the mischief that took place uh, during the previous years before these guys were beating the bushes were a couple of runaway slaves. Um, uh, but while they were out, you know, searching, they they spooked something and they uh, they flushed an animal or they flushed a figure and it was a bipedal beetle figure covered in hair uh, that just took off from the wood line across a, a prairie um, and guys with on horseback, you know, immediately took off took out after it and um was described as a female, uh, uh long flowing hair off the head, but just the whole body covered in, in hair. And according to the accounts, the horses each time they would get within uh, uh a distance where the guys might be able to rope this thing, uh would shy away. It, it the horses didn't want anything to do with it. And it was going fast enough that these horses were having to go all out to keep up with it. And uh, uh, so eventually this thing makes it to another tree line and, and escapes. Um, later, a a slave was captured, a female slave, her partner, the male whose prince they had found uh, with hers had apparently died uh, sometime before, but they did capture uh, a female uh, escaped slave who um, they, you know, basically probably was the responsible her and her her partner for like simple petty larceny that had gone gone on. But it was during the search for them that this other thing got flushed. And again, if you if you read the description of this thing. You know, bipedal, covered in hair, just faster than any person has a right to be fast, you know, uh, outrunning horses. Horses had a fear of it. Like I said, the, the main gist of the story is a story about a couple of runaway slaves that caused some, some scares up and down that river. But during the course of the, trying to figure out what was going on, I think the people in that community may have scared up one of these animals, and uh, that's a very famous account, at least regionally down here in Texas, that a lot of people still talk about. There's actually a a historical marker down in that part of the world. Uh, For real? Yeah. uh, You can go online. You can find a picture of it. Uh, uh, I may even have a picture of it on the blog. I'm not sure. I don't recall. But um, it's quite an interesting story. And and there are others. There's... um, the Converse Werewolf is a great story. Uh, the the Cleo Face, uh, there's a little ghost town now, a little community called Cleo, um, where 
there was a legend of a shape-shifting Indian that could turn into this monster. Mm -hmm. Um, There was a uh, famous story that came out of Marble Falls. Um, uh, They called it the Bear King of Marble Falls. A guy named Mike Cox wrote about that on, uh, I cannot remember the website, but uh, I sourced a lot of his material. I did a write-up of of it on the blog, but uh, basically, basically an abduction story. Um, where one of these animals, you know, grabbed uh, a young lady and hauled her off, and you know the, the men of the town took off, you know, formed a, a search party, went off after it and cornered it uh, up in the up in the hills, and um, you know it's quite an interesting tale, and and so there's a lot of stories like that around that again they all predate. You know, Patterson Gimlin by, in some cases, you know, well over 100 years. And then you go on back to the, the native legends before that, you know, indigenous people. And um, so there's all kinds of stuff like that around. And then you get into more modern things like I was referring to when I spoke to you before about where I grew up, the stories of the of old mossy back, the swamp monster, or the raggedy man, or the wild man uh, out in the big thicket, those permeated, those were campfire stories from when I was a kid, you know, growing up in the 70s, uh, people were telling those stories, so uh, that kind of falls under that oral tradition that that you were talking to, uh, talking about, so um, those are all kind of historical stories that you can, you know, if you want to take the time, you can go out on the blog and, and, and search. I've got, I think I've got them all under the heading of, of Sasquatch classics. I think, you know, there's famous stories that maybe not everyone across the country is aware of. It's easy to talk about Patterson Gimlin. Everybody knows about that who has an interest in, in this subject. But there's a lot of regional stories that, that people don't know about. That I, and I, that, that's kind of what attracts me. So those are some of the historical accounts that I've looked into and researched a little bit and, and have enjoyed learning a little bit about writing about. And, uh, but like I said, I, there's even a story my father tells about when he was a kid and he, you know, again, growing up out close to St. Augustine, um, there was a cousin who lived out in the woods up against a creek and uh, one day they were out, uh, some starting to go down, they were just chunking rocks. You know, there was a kind of a low brush line, you know, kind of a shrubby, overgrown area that kind of bordered this creek. It was a dry creek. It was like a runoff creek. It wasn't a live creek. and But it was probably about a five-foot drop, a four- or five-foot drop to the bottom of the creek. And they were just throwing rocks, and they would... Um, hear the rocks strike the, you know, the, the bottom of the creek, the creek bed when they when they cleared the brush, and they were just chunking them and hearing it clack, and the rock clack, chunk it, hear the clack, and then they threw one, and they didn't hear it land. And they, uh, it was right at dusk, and, and as they were kind of, thought that was strange, they were kind of looking in that direction, something raised up from that creek bed and, and was looking at them, eyeball to eyeball, and like I said, that creek bed was about four or five feet below. They were standing on the ground, and whatever this was would have been standing, its feet would have been four feet at least 
below ground level where they were, and yet it was looking at them right in the face. They were just boys, but even so, it was you know eye level with them, and that that freaked them out pretty good. They went off running, and whatever it was, kept traveling down the creek bank. Uh, my great uncle had some uh, bird dogs pinned up, kept out away from the house, and, and they just went ballistic just a minute or two after all this happened. And, so it was traveling, you know, in that direction. So that that's kind of a family story that's, that's great. brought out every now and then. So, so all that kind of stuff has fueled an interest in me, you know, through the years that I've just always kind of held on to. So how long have you been a member of the Texas Bigfoot Conservancy or now the NAWAC? Going, that's probably, let me think here. I guess 10 years now. I had... Um, a visual of my own in May of 2005 of what I believe to be one of these these animals, and that prompted me to look around and, and try to find somebody that I felt like was credible, that was trying to get to the bottom of this thing legitimately and not just looking for some sort of self-glorification and wasn't crazy, and, and that's what led me to the, to the group. So I guess it's uh, close to 10 years, if not 10 years. Kind of worked my way up from the bottom to being on the board of directors at this point. I was going to say, I, I was pretty sure you were on the board now. How did the summer turn out? Well, not as busy as some and busier than others, I guess. It was some more kind of in the middle between some of the summers that we've had uh, out in our study area. I talked to Kathy right before... Mm-hmm. The summer started, we were talking about the the weather and Mm -hmm. the weather that we had in Texas and Oklahoma certainly saw a good portion of it. So it was an unbelievable spring that really kind of started right around Mother's Day because there was actually like a little twister tornado touchdown in Tarrant County and the rain that came with that storm cell. And then it was just punished us for a month. There are a lot of places around here that still have not recovered. Right. I know that uh, I heard Daryl and Brian on with Seth Breedlove on Sasswat right before the summer started, too. And they were kind of discussing that they were concerned about the weather. It was weird because my wife and I, we discussed the fact that it didn't really seem like we had a summer because, you know, May, it's supposed to be summertime in Texas. And it seemed like it really... It rained all through June, and then it took like a month for stuff to really dry out. Did it's, Did you get the feeling like maybe your timeline was pushed back at all because of the weather? Well, the timeline of the actual operation was not pushed back. I mean, we were there at that time. Now, how it, it's kind of hard to say what affects the animal versus... How much does it affect you? We were limited in what we could do. We were there. We were in the area. We were where we wanted to be. But there were just simply things we couldn't do at times because of the weather. Um, We couldn't go everywhere necessarily we wanted to go because these creeks, which normally, if if they're not dry or very, very low, were just raging torrents of white water, you know, from all the rain. You know, we couldn't cross. uh, either on foot or, or even in, in vehicles in some cases. Um, you know, would these animals be able to do it? I don't know. And no doubt that they would be more physically capable than, than I would be or, or any person would be, but why would they? You know, it's uh, my personal view on 
you know, the natural world is, is, is calories are precious to wildlife and they don't, they're not easily come by. Um, so you, they don't waste energy doing things just for the sake of doing them. Uh, right. And so, you know, why burn a bunch of, of, of calories and energy trying to fight your way across a 30 yard wide creek that's just raging? Well, we'll just sit down over here. I mean, there's food over here too, and, and certainly water isn't an issue, you know, because it's everywhere right now. And if the living's good over here, why should we? wander around very much, you know, and I think that's something a lot of people don't realize about a lot, a lot of wildlife spends an awful lot of time just sitting, sitting and sleeping. I mean, think about your, your dog, you know, yeah. it, it's, 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 it sleeps, you know, probably 15 hours a day. You know, if you leave it at home during the day, it's sleeping almost that whole time, almost without exception. And, and yet it still manages to sleep at night too. It's, it's, and you go look at, you know, lions on the Serengeti in Africa. They'll spend 20 hours a day just lounging around in the shade. And again, it's calories are hard to come by. So mm-hmm. I think that I think the weather factored into the activity level of of the wildlife in the area in general. I don't think these animals would be an exception to that. I think also it limited to a large degree. Uh, uh, at least on a lot of the weeks, the teams that were in there. I know, for example, two two years ago, two summers ago, when I was there for a week, we already moved it all. It rained every. It rained six and seven days. I was there, and I yeah. mean, it rained hard for seven, eight hours. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I guess. See, when I was saying that about the timeline, what I was kind of saying was for nature necessarily, because yeah. you know, by this time last year, we had already. In North Texas, we had a freeze in early October. Mm-hmm. We had, and then another one in November. And then at the early part of December last year, this whole area was under ice. Right. And Oklahoma just received their first big ice storm last week or whatever. And I don't think that in North Texas proper, I mean, I'm sure there have on some of the outlying areas, but hardly any of the areas even been under a freeze yet and here we are good few days into december i just kind of felt like it whether it's el nino or whatever the heck you know all that rain kind of represented spring but that happened like may into Mm -hmm. june and so summer didn't really ramp up until you know july where i'm not lying and people who aren't from here don't don't understand like in may it's supposed to be almost 100 degrees you know you Expect May, June, July, August. It's not that it's cool in September, but it's certainly starting to turn that way. And now it just seems like, you know, man, August was so brutal. I wonder if because we had all that rain and everything for so long earlier in the summer, if it just like delayed the time of whether it's plants or whatever. Yeah, it's it it looked the same. I mean, it was all greened up. It was uh, everything was fully leafed out um, when I was there. But you're right. I mean, it's, that certainly is a possibility. The thing is, we just don't know enough yeah. about the animal to be able to say, you know, what is their normal behavior? Uh, so when something doesn't happen, well, maybe last year when it happened, maybe that was the abnormal behavior, the, the unusual out-of-the-norm kind of incident as opposed to this year when 
things were maybe a little quieter. We were very confident they were there, they were around, there were visuals. I was not fortunate enough to have one this summer, but we have uh, we had team members that did have visuals. Several took place at night with you know with some night vision type equipment, but it, it was not quite as active as as it had been the year before. But again, it was I think part of that too. This is an extraordinary place where we go. I can understand why some people might think we're engaging in some hyperbole when we describe it and everything that goes up there because because it, it, it this is not the norm. This is a place where they appear to stay pretty much year-round. This is a place where we don't seem to run them off when we arrive, whether it's curiosity or they're just being cautious and they're, they're, they always have somebody, have one of them, you know, keeping an eye on us or, or you know, all speculation as to why they don't leave. They just don't seem to leave, even when we're around. And it's a very special, unusual place, and which is, of course, why we're we spend so much time up there and, and make so so much of our effort as a group is concentrated on, on that area because they don't seem to leave. You know, it's been the prevailing theory that people come in and these animals will retreat. And but I think what we've learned is. Maybe they're not really going away. Maybe they're just getting quiet. Because if you think about people, recreational campers, hikers, mountain bikers who go out into the bush a little bit or ride these trails, typically they'll come out into an area and they'll put a tent down or park a trailer or whatever they're doing. They stay two or three nights tops, and then they leave. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I believe personally that these animals have been conditioned to understand that, okay, we don't necessarily like these people in our area, but they'll be gone in, in a couple of days, you know. And I'm not trying to insinuate there's that actual thought process going, but just there's an understanding that we lay low, they're going to be gone. Uh, and the whole theory behind what we've been trying to do the last few summers is we're not going to leave. We want to elicit a response. We want to get past that point where they think we should be gone. Right. And and try to elicit a reaction from them to try to encourage us to leave. Because, again, if you think about some of these stories that are so well-known and have uh, been documented, people get scared, be it a rock throw, be it something screaming out in the woods or howling or whatever the case may be, they get scared. And what do they do? They leave. Mm-hmm. So that's what we're trying to get. And I think to a large degree, we've, we've been successful in eliciting responses. What is unusual and what we wondered would happen is after a while, once we got through those initial few days where they maybe began to get frustrated by our continued presence, we elicit these responses. Well, if we don't leave... Will they finally give up and they leave? But at least in this one particular area, they don't seem to leave. I mean, they'll be quiet days. They'll be quiet weeks even, but they never seem to be too far away. They never seem to just evacuate the area. Do you ever have anybody go up in, you know, February? Yeah, we, we've had some winter ops up there. Um much less success. There have been some incidents, but I think these animals are amazingly 
elusive. And the lack of cover in the winter, because we're in lots and lots of hardwoods, and in the winter they drop their leaves. And, mm-hmm. and so the visibility becomes so much better. I think they're there. We, we've, again, we, we've had incidents, we've had things happen, but they do seem to keep farther away. They're, they, they're aware that they're more vulnerable. They're more apt to be seen. In, in the summer, you can't imagine how thick this place is. People just, yeah, they, they don't understand. <laughs> uh, and I don't blame them for not understanding because most of us never get off the concrete these days. But right. You just it, this is like a Congo where we go. It's it's just amazing to you know something can be ten feet from you and you wouldn't know it. Right. Um, but during the winter, that's not the case. The thing that's interesting is even at night when we've had these visuals through the um, these things are still sneaking up. They're, they're they're staying low to the ground. They're behind trees or rocks or they don't realize that we can't see as well at night, I guess, because they're still acting as if it's broad daylight. They're still hiding, even though it's pitch black out there, not realizing that we don't see them. Without that equipment, we would never even know they were there in a lot of cases. And and so they're incredibly furtive, incredibly aware of their surroundings and and just perfectly in tune with their environment and how to stay hidden. It's, It's quite amazing. Quite amazing animals, actually. The more I think about it, just found myself contemplating this more and more the other day because my really good friend, he was going camping at uh, Robber's Cave State Park mm-hmm. in Oklahoma. Yeah, I kind of talked with Kathy about this a little bit, about the limestone in the area. Is it really that far of a stretch to think that there may be some sort of a connection between not that there's necessarily like city of the underground and the Wachita's, but the way that that limestone over time can just open up being so porous, especially where a place where there's a lot of rainfall. It just seems like if there's an area where you're feeling like they're there, but why would they not be, you know, why would they be in the same area, but the visibility is low I mean, I'm not trying to straight up say that these are troglodytes we're dealing with here. It kind of seems like it makes sense. And, you know, what you're saying about how thick the vegetation is, there's places where you can walk through and there be an opening to a cave that may be really small at the top or whatever. But, you know, there's a cavern underneath that thing. Mm-hmm. If I'm just using logic and I'm thinking about their nighttime visibility and the way that you say that they operate at night as if it's in the middle of the day. If we're talking about evolution of a species here, they're used to being in dark areas and dark recesses. Just kind of seems like that could be a possibility. Now, I know that's not anything that y'all have, that y'all are right. pushing, right. but. Well, you know, anything's possible. I, I think uh, one thing that we have found out up there, and I, I want to make sure and clarify something, is. There's a pretty common belief uh, among those who are interested in this particular subject that, you know, these animals are nocturnal. We have found that that's not really the case. They do move about in the daytime. They do. They are active in the daytime. That's where the the visuals really a lot of them are taking place, you know, in broad daylight. Yeah, we've seen them, you know, at night. They do tend to get closer at night from what we've been able to discern both, again, with 
a few of the visuals we've had with the night vision equipment and honestly just the smell. I mean, you, there's a very unique smell that, that's associated with them and it just never seems to fail that, you know, you get a whiff of this particular smell and then something weird happens very shortly thereafter and, and then it's just gone. You know, it's, uh, um, I think like a lot of animals, they're going to be you know, more active at right when the sun's coming up and right at dusk and an hour on either side of those events. That's when a lot of wildlife is, is the most active and We've seen that kind of thing. So um, I don't doubt they see better than we do at night. Just the fact, if if you just take the the anatomical differences between us and them, even if if their eyes are structurally very similar to ours, just how much bigger they are, they're going to intake more light than we are. So I, I feel like that was going to give them an advantage, help them see better than we do. But what you're what you're alluding to, I mean, uh, anything is possible. I think. Um, I do personally feel like they're too sharp to be in some sort of uh, a cave or, or something along a cavern where there's only one way in and one way out. Yeah, and I, that's... Uh... Yeah, they're not going to allow themselves to be caught in a, in a fatal funnel, in my opinion. Now. Yeah, no, I, and and that's the thing. And this is, um, is kind of how weird I am, but these are... You know, a lot of this is theory, and then I'll read something somewhere and kind of start putting things together and reading about the idea of uh, troglodytes or the idea of people underground. You know, if you go back to uh, the Hopi in New Mexico, Arizona, Grand Canyon area, that, you know, their creation story is that the ant people came up out of the ground and basically taught them how to how to live. That's the way that they referred to them as the ant people. Mm-hmm. Again, I wonder if this is something that technology eventually is going to prove. I totally agree with you. When I say that there may be like a cave, I don't mean the hole in the ground that opens up into a one massive cavern with, like you say, one way in and one way out. Especially with the geography of the area and the fact that the Wachitas are the only mountain range that run. What is that? That's longitudinal, right? Like mm-hmm. when you look uh, at the Rockies, they run up and down on a map. And the Wachita's kind of run side to side. Looks like it's formed just differently for whatever reason. And I say like a cave system, but I don't even know if that's necessarily, that's kind of what I mean, but because that's really the only word for it. I just wonder, you hear about these people in Mexico and they'll just stumble upon <laughs> massive cavern. Goes for miles and interconnected and parts of it are underwater. And uh... well, and again, you know, it kind of goes back to the, the reality that we just don't really know a whole lot about them. Right. And, and it just adds uh, to the fascination of it. My brain wants to try to figure out reasons for what the skeptics and the scoptics say, why we haven't found one and all that. And I'm, again, from East Texas, so I totally understand the fact that you're not just going to walk up and find a body in the woods. I mean, those things are gone. Mm-hmm. That's ridiculous. And if right. you've ever been in a heavily wooded area, you understand that as obviously you have. I really feel like you guys are on to something in terms of the boots on the ground aspect of it, I think is huge because I totally agree that, like I told Matt very early on, if you and I want to go look for Bigfoot, what are we going to do? We're going to go and we're going to camp for a weekend and then we're going to leave. And right. any wildlife, not just an elusive ape species, but any wildlife is not going to come walking up on us unless it's, you know, a predator of some sort that's trying to get what we got. Right. It's just not going to happen. Um, you obviously are very, very familiar with the cat population in Texas, the large cat population in Texas. And I've been in Big Bend National Park hiking and 
walked up on a tree and saw a white tail carcass was just shoved up in between two branches and you know you'll hear people that are there for years and they never see what's doing it but people know that there's cats there you know my head kind of comes to like like i get the vegetation thing and the fact that it's hard to see them then that's why i was asking about the winter and i wonder because um i feel like uh maybe it's that maybe it's uh there's a documentary it's i think it's called bigfootville that they'll mm-hmm. run on History Channel or Travel Channel. And, you know, it's got a really heavy Native American tilt to it. Mm-hmm. And uh, when they're actually there, there's like a big ice storm that comes in that night, you know. And I don't know what time of year it is, but in Oklahoma, it could be anywhere from September to April, <laughs> pretty much, you know. Right. We'll get really random late, late season ice storms. And it just, uh, it, it's kind of one of those things where it's like if they're if you know like they're intelligent enough to seek shelter it seems like you know if canopy is down and there's not a lot of vegetation on the trees and i don't think that they're building houses you know i'm not a huge fan of the whole idea of structure i mean i'm sure they do some i mean we know that the apes in africa will build huge nests way up in the trees but I just wonder, like, it's one of those kind of things. Like, I wonder if there's way more to it than we have any idea of. And and that's really the fascinating thing with the what the NAWAC is doing. And really kind of excited to see that you guys expanded your area of operation, at least starting to take reports and stuff from other places. Yeah, we're, we're getting there. Um, it is exciting. You know, the, the organization has grown and and we've got members from a lot of different parts of the country now uh, we even have a couple of international members now uh, you know it, it's a fun time to be, to be part of it uh, I just don't think there's a lot of people doing the things that we're doing I, I think a lot of people really make genuine efforts they really do try but I think you know we we have to work for a living we we've got mm-hmm. to um I mean two or three nights in you know, in no way am I scoffing at that. Um, people, you do, you know, you do what you can do. But when when people ask me, you know, why why don't we have one of these? Why haven't we found it? I said, it's because nobody's looking. Yeah, uh, it really is that it, simple. It really, simple. it really is that simple. And it's also, if you go way back to the origin of the quote-unquote bigfoot hunter all they did was respond to reports so it's like you know showing up at places after something is gone now let's extrapolate that to the deer population in texas and i tell you that hey yesterday i saw a white tail an eight-point white tail just right off of the side of the highway 155 right in frankston what are you going to do? You're going to go out there and find it? You know, like that thing right. is gone. It it amazes me. You guys are doing something that nobody else is doing. And you've honestly made really, really large strides. And I think probably any of the, what's the deal? Why haven't we gotten one yet? Is really mm-hmm. just because, you know, you've got right, everyone again, excited yeah. about what you're, what you're up to. You well, I hope so. I hope we're, we're bringing some awareness to it. I continue to get that, that question, and, and uh, sometimes it's even a little snarky. You know, all these visuals, and, you know, how come 
you know, you haven't got a shot at one or what, whatever, and it's so fleeting. There are two aspects to that. Number one is the typical visual. It's just a flash. I mean, and there are literally dozens of times where members have seen something move or bolt or fall out of a tree or, or bust through the brush and you get a glimpse. You, you might have got a flash of brown or or black or something, but we don't necessarily count those, those as, as visuals, you know, because right. we can't absolutely say for sure that's what it was. We try to be very scientific in our approach and very conservative in, in our approach, but uh, even the, the the visual, the hard visuals, the hard contacts where there's not much doubt what you're looking at. It's just a second or two. It's just because it, it, you're just catching it through a little window in the brush, you know, moving from one piece of cover to the next, and it's just a couple of steps, and, and, and it's, it's back into some thick stuff. By the time you realize what you're looking at, it's, it's gone. It's amazingly frustrating. And again, it's a testament to their elusivity and their natural cautiousness. It, it, they're, they're really a, 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 a walking contradiction because they, they appear to be very curious and yet so careful at the same time. And uh, those two things, you know, you wouldn't think would necessarily go together, but uh, I think that plays into why they don't leave. And I think that plays into why we get glimpses of them from time to time. Uh, and yet, we, you know, they're not going to just stand in the clearing and wave their arms at you. And, you know, here I am, you know, and uh, they just they just don't do that. Um, and it's it's it, like I said, it's amazingly frustrating. I can see where people would, would question, you know. You get these contacts, you've had this happen, you've had this many sightings, why nothing else? And, and we're, we're trying our best. And, uh, but um, it's, uh, it's much more difficult than people realize. I think we've all been, I think we've been brainwashed a little by the Animal Planet uh, videos and, and specials where you get these amazing shots of all this wildlife and, you know, and we can go right out and find lions or we can go right out and find a leopard or a bear or whatever the show's about. And a lot of those shows are canned. You know, those those animals are somewhere where there's a fence keeping them. Now, it may be a very large area by normal standards. It may be a couple hundred acres or something, but a lot of times these animals are not just roaming truly free. Right, just like the big game ranches in Texas. Yeah, They're a dime exactly. a dozen, and if you have enough money and you want to go shoot an axis deer in Texas, you can. Right, and so you know, but that's not like it's not like that where we go. Right, and it's um, and that's also uh, the biggest counter to the why don't you just you know get you a tranquilizer gun and, and shoot <laughs> a dart and and we could go on about that all night, but you know, number one, that's not a very high velocity weapon at all, and it just doesn't have the the force to get through to do any brush busting on the way to the, the animal. Yeah. That alone, and, and how close you're going to have to be, that's not easy to do. And and it's not going to penetrate that vegetation anyway. And then you can get into the whole deal of, well, well you know, how much tranquilizer and which one do you use? And, 
And how do you get it? You know, you can't just go down to Walgreens and buy that kind of thing. Right. So it, there's a litany of, of issues with that, but that plays into it as well. But I, I get the question, and we don't mind questions. We are big fans of open-minded skepticism. We don't mind hard questions. But um, a lot of times, it seems like in this field, that there really is no middle ground. When, when someone says they're open-minded, it means they believe. And when someone says they're skeptic, it means no matter what you bring me, I'm not going to believe it unless I see it myself or see it laying on the slab, you know. And there really seems to be very little middle ground for whatever reason um, with this particular field. I agree. It's uh, It must be frustrating, and it sucks that you guys have to spend as much time as you do going over a lot of the same questions when it's just so elementary. I, I'm way more fascinated with the what if and the trying to string the theories together of what may be happening instead of what isn't and why isn't, why can't. Yeah, I, I, can't, I can't figure out why everybody isn't just as curious about this as I am. I think it's just fascinating and, and you know, how can you, you know, so many people are like, well, I don't care if it's out there, even if it is real, I, what do I care? You know, and I just don't get that. I just don't get that at all. We've just become so urbanized, I think, that we've, so many people have just lost touch with with nature and wildlife, and, and you know, I just, I, I don't get it. Yeah, but, uh, I don't either. I, I don't. There is, there's an apathy about it. There really is. It's sad, and it's sad that there are a lot of people that are like that, but you know what? It's really awesome to show someone who doesn't really understand the grandeur. It's still really um, rewarding to, hell, just take some kids out in the middle of nowhere and say, look at the Milky Way, mm-hmm. the light pollution, and the we can't even see the stars. So it doesn't surprise me that a lot of people are not like that. But again, I think that it's just really... Uh, if you have a tendency to lean towards mysteries, it's a fascinating one. Hey, I think that uh, the idea of giant black cats in Texas are fascinating. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. When I, when I started the Texas Cryptid Hunter blog, I really thought that the most popular topic would probably be the, the Wood Ape, the Sasquatch topic. Uh, and I was completely wrong about that. It has turned out to be these... These big black cats, these uh, black panthers, as they're called commonly uh, down here, by far. I mean, it's not even close, the amount of correspondence I get among all the topics. And and I'm kind of eclectic. I jump around a little bit to different things. But, I mean, it just dominates the emails I get, the comments I get on the blog. It's It's just not even close. A lot of that has to do with the fact that what I always say about a cat is just like every cat on the planet is just trying to figure out a way to kill you. It's just whether or not it's big enough to do so. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with you. They're sneaky little devils, that's for sure. But, you know, what's funny is uh, part of the world I grew up in, you know, there are a lot of people that will laugh right in your face when you try to talk about Bigfoot, but they're ready to fight you if you tell them there's no such thing as a black panther. Yeah. I've seen one. You know, I know dang well there is. I've seen them. You know, as far as science is concerned, there is no such animal. And, you know, even people who live in town, who, who never get off the sidewalk, you know, they, well, I've seen them on TV. I've seen them in movies. What are you talking about? And you, you try to explain, well, what you saw was a, a melanistic leopard. That's an African cat. They don't, and that's not a separate species. And you might have seen a melanistic jaguar on TV. Uh, but again, you know, that's not supposed to be here. There is no such 
such thing as a Black Panther in Texas. And, <laughs> and, and boy, they're, I mean, they're ready to fight. Yeah, they are. The Texas Parks and Wildlife Department, either they were, the person was wrong, mistaken, or it was an escaped pet. You know, it's, there's always an old story about some, some circus train derailed and all the animals got out. And, you know, there seems to be a circus train story for every county (laughs) in the south, the southwest, the southeast, you know. I feel like it was earlier in the year, right when we started having that run of really bad storms and there was that exotic wildlife park in Oklahoma and they actually, like, issued a report, like a warning to the town, afraid that some animals had escaped. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then they were all quickly shot. The thing that people don't understand about the quote unquote escaped wildlife is they don't exactly run and hide. It always seems like like maybe they have revenge on their minds or they just don't know how to operate in the wild. But they don't exactly disappear from people. They're generally mauling folks. I think it's more the latter. I think they're they've become dependent. Yeah, totally. Some some of the exotics. They've never hunted their entire life. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've always been fed, and so they don't have the skills. They associate people with food, so they go exactly. to people. Exactly. So, but you know that you know an incredibly rare type scenario, and these sightings come in from all over Texas and the southeast, and that seems to be where they're concentrated. There have been other reports from other parts of the country that get tons from Texas, Oklahoma, Louisiana, and then basically what we call SEC country, you know? Yeah. You know, Alabama, Georgia, Florida, you know, Carolinas, Arkansas, that part of the world. Farther north, you get, it may just be that people aren't contacting me who are farther north. Uh, it's pretty pretty amazing, and, and, you know, you get down to, well, what are they? Certainly possible a few cases of, of what you've mentioned, maybe some escaped exotics occasionally. Certainly there are cases where people are probably mistaken. They've seen something more common and they've they've misinterpreted what they saw and they've, they've made a mistake. But uh, there's just so many accounts and you think, well, well what is it people are seeing? And, and I think there's, unlike some of the other things I look into, I, th- I think there's only a handful of possibilities. It could be some combination of all of them or, you know, predominantly one. I don't know. Uh, like I said, in my mind, there's only a handful of possibilities that I can kind of run through with you if you'd like. Yeah, I'd well, love to hear what yeah. you thought. Okay, so first, we know there are mountain lions, cougars in Texas, and they are more, much more widely distributed than a lot of people believe. You mentioned the Big Bend country earlier. Pretty much that's the only area where the Parks and Wildlife Department will admit to a breeding population of, of mountain lions in Texas. Is it really uh, that? I See, I had no idea that they yeah, were the, that the, dismissive of it. Well, it's just, you know, for they got hunted out. They were, you know, regionally extirpated, and they are making a comeback. Yeah. And, and, you know, I know there are reports right, right in my area here, Central Texas, a couple times a year you'll hear about somebody seeing one. But, you know, the, the problem with cougars as a culprit, even though they are mo- much more widely distributed and becoming less unusual maybe to, to see them, is they're tawny-colored. You know, they're, they're kind of honey-colored. Yeah. Um, there's never been a documented case of melanism in, in, in a mountain mine. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean it never happens, but we've never had one in captivity. No one's ever shot one, seen one, or, or captured one. 
but you know, when you're talking about the size of cats that's being described, the cougar has to be uh, a suspect. Um, the long tail, you know, the overall size of the body and so forth. Um, certainly you think mountain lion and, you know, maybe low light conditions, uh, like a lot of animals, the, the thickness of the coat and the coloration of the coat varies a little bit from summer months to winter months, um, probably thicker, a little darker looking in the winter. And if you got that under, you know, some, in some kind of shadowy or low light conditions, you know, that could explain some of them, but, you know, so that's a possibility, I guess. Um, the second possibility in my mind is that we've got, we've got jaguars up here. Now, jags were once common native to Texas and, and throughout much of the southeast, all the way up uh, out to the Carolinas area. Uh, and um, jaguars do exhibit melanism. Uh, roughly one in ten uh, can be predominantly black, if not totally black. There, I do have some reports of people saying that uh, even though it was black, uh, you could still see hints of markings on the coat. Like if you've ever seen a, uh, a melanistic jaguar, you can still kind of see the rosettes, the spots on mm-hmm. the coat, even though when the angle was just right, even though the coat was black. Um, and uh, the thing about that um, that is confusing to me and that makes me believe this can't be the only or the main suspect is, is that if if only roughly one in ten exhibits melanism, why are we not seeing any of the regular spotted cats? Why are we not if, if it's jaguars and only one in ten on average is black? Why do we? Why does no one ever report seeing you know the regular uh, spotted coat? of the cat that we're also familiar with. You know, we, we're only seeing only these big black cats are being uh, described. So that makes me wonder about the, you know, the jaguar theory, but it has to be considered simply again, because of the size of the cats being reported jags are big, big cats. They're third largest cat in the world. And uh, there's simply no mistaking, you know, a jaguar for, you know, a domestic, you know, it's just not going to happen. So, and they were native at one time. So, uh, at least on occasion, you know, they're, they're a possible suspect. Um, the third possible suspect, in my opinion, is a smaller cat. It's called a Jaguarundi. Um, this is a cat, uh, gets to be about 25, 30 pounds would be a big one. But they're very long bodied. They're very low to the ground. They're they're, they're kind of weird looking little cats. They got small rounded ears. They're they're almost otter like in their appearance in some ways. Kind of a, a flat. It, it, the head is is odd shaped, but they they are significantly larger than what you would see in a domestic cat that was out roaming around. So uh, I can see where someone who is even unaware that these animals even exist, you know, catches a glimpse of one of these things and, and think, man, my God, that's a big cat, you know, and, and might interpret it as having been bigger than it really was because your, when your frame of reference is your little tabby cat, 
back home, you know, this thing is going to dwarf that. It's got the long tail. And they do go through a black phase uh, where they are charcoal-colored to just a very dark, dark blackish color. So I think they could account for quite a few of, of these these sightings. Uh, the fly in that ointment is that they're considered to be a South American and Central American species for the most part. And they're not supposed to be in Texas. And this is the, you know, the Jaguarundi, right? Correct. Correct. And you know, Is that how you say that? Jaguarundi? <laughs> Jaguarundi, yeah. That, it's just like Jaguar with undie on the end it of it. It runs you know, together. Um, and, and like I said, they're an established, well-known species. They are quite a bit larger, heavier than a, a, a domestic cat, which everybody would be familiar with. But they're very, like I said, they're kind of odd-looking. They're pretty distinctive. So it, it would be, not only would someone take note of it because of the size, it would be longer, heavier than a, a regular domestic would be. But um, it, like I said, the head shape, it's, it's, it's got the long tail. I'm actually looking at Texas Parks and Wildlife cats of texas pdf that they put out on the gov site and looking at this yeah. uh, picture of it and the tail's almost as long looks like it would fold back and nearly touch the nose yeah it's very long in relation to the body and but like i said it, it's mainly a, a south american and central american cat uh, they do list it as a texas species but it is thought to be incredibly rare and only in deep south texas if i'm not mistaken kind of down on the, the coastal valley kind of areas down there. And personally, I think they range much farther to the north than that, and I think they're doing better, and there are more of them than a lot of people believe. And I think they could account for quite a few of these sightings. Yeah, now, I wonder, see, and I don't mean to cut you off here, but I one thing that is real popular up here, especially – with the urban sprawl taking place, the difference between now and 10 years ago in terms of what is actually wild and what has been bulldozed. Uh, you know, I, I was working in Las Colinas a lot last year, and I'd see coyotes on the regular, which is just, you know, that, that just used to never happen. You'd never see a coyote crossing concrete, you know, and now not a big deal at all. But it's not just the coyotes. It's like, I don't know if you've noticed, but like the red hawk population in Texas has exploded. A bird that was basically considered to be out. And now you can't drive down the interstate without seeing one perched on a highway sign. And the fact is, is that because of, you know, all the clearing of the land has driven all of the wildlife out into the open. It would make sense that the predator to prey ratio is kind of skewed. It says on here that the Jaguarundi is rare because it was thought that its habitat was destroyed. But if you have thousand acres of land that, you know, you're going to put a nice home development up in and you clear all that out all of that wildlife that's in that area has to kind of spread it would i mean it would make sense that a predator could thrive in an area like that where it would only need limited amounts of cover well and i'll i'll take it even a step farther than that for you i've got a kind of a personal theory that um some of these predators are, are, are beginning to adapt quite well to living in very close proximity to people i think it's it's 
very well established that, uh, well, the reason coyotes have thrived and wolves have been all but wiped out is because the wolves could not adapt to living around in close proximity to people. Um, and the coyotes did. They are major, a major presence in large urban areas, uh, cities of Houston, Dallas, San Antonio. There's a great article out there if you just Google Chicago coyotes or coyotes in Chicago of these large numbers of the, of packs of these animals that are living in downtown Chicago. Mm Uh, they curl up in an alley or somewhere in the daytime and, and people walk within 20 feet of them all the time. Yeah. But at night they come out and there's a, you know, there's a large rodent population. There are, uh, green belts, there are parks, there are Fifi in somebody's backyard, you know, occasionally and, uh, things of that nature. And, and, but it's a, it's a great article about this, this urban population, uh, of coyotes living in Chicago. Uh, about a year ago, uh, Coyote was on the roof of a bar in one of the boroughs of New York. I don't remember which one it was, <laughs> but you're like, how in the world, you know, did it get here? It's in the middle of this sprawling city. They've adapted. They've become, I know, a big problem out at the airports in Houston. Yeah. And uh, so they've adapted quite nicely. Now, I believe in... That that some of the cats have begin have begun to figure it out as well, and it would make sense because they are you so know, much more sly. Yeah, exactly. They're very stealthy, and and now there have been accounts of bobcats being shot and cat or, or or captured in Houston uh, again several years ago. I think I had something about it on the blog. Bobcats get in these parking garages and stuff, but they're always close to a waterway, a bayou, a, a creek, a green belt. And just just up there in your area alone, you know, the Trinity River yep. is a major thoroughfare. And, you know, if you look at a map, you can find green belts that connect to this green belt, that connect to that river, that connect to that. You can, you can do an awful lot of traveling if you wanted to and remain unseen going right through major metropolitan areas. Um, uh, following these waterways and green belts. Yeah, and they're all running to the Gulf. I mean, mm-hmm. and and like you said about Chicago, I mean, you can basically follow waterways all the way up to the city. Right, and and I think some of the, I know the bobcats have become uh, uh, more urban. Uh, I've gotten quite a few pictures from people that have sent me of, of cats perched up on privacy fences or in trees and, and that kind of deal. You know, the Plano area is a hotbed for, for this kind of thing. And I think, you know, it's very possible some of these larger cats, uh, both the, the normal mountain lions that we're used to and, and some, and again, that Plano area, it, it's very surprising to a lot of folks. This is an area that's, I get a lot of these big black cat reports out of these areas. Um, you'll see that they, they tend to be the areas. Okay. There's a, there's a subdivision, and then it ends, and then it's miles on the other. You know, you go one way, you're you're right in town. But right. The other way, the last house on the cul-de-sac backs up to miles and miles and miles of nothing. Mm-hmm. And you still that, have that, a lot of people who own 
large sprawls up here, farmland. There's mm-hmm. there's one quite famous one right off of 75, you know, central. Um, once you get right past Dallas, it's the one little area that's just like, I don't know what he's got out there, soybeans or whatever. But, you know, the guy just middle finger to the air. I'm not selling it. Right. And, and I don't know that they stay. An outline, for example, has a pretty large range. They, they tend to patrol and roam and they're not in any one place too long, but you could certainly, an animal like that could spend several days in an area and pretty much stay hidden if you wanted to Yeah. Uh, before he moved on somewhere else. And personally, I think that has, you know, that's part of what, you know, why people are seeing whatever they're seeing. I, I do think some of these, some of these cats are getting a little better at adapting to being in close proximity to people. Uh, they're not going to you know, live in town, I don't think, but but I don't think they would have much trouble passing through, again, you know, green belt that, that uh, abuts a waterway. You know, some of these green belts are a mile wide or more. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, or, you know, railroads are, that's another, path, you know, pathway. Lots of pictures of cats walking railroad tracks. Yeah, uh, which makes sense, again. And a lot of those tracks go through town, but they go through seedy, older all but abandoned, you know, warehouse type districts. At least at night, especially at night, you know, not many people are are out and about. So, and the um, people that would see them, nobody would believe them. Well, that's, <laughs> that's true. And a lot of those people have no interest in reporting anything to the authorities. Yeah, so. totally. But you know, those are those are a few you know ideas, and and there's some others out there what they could be. Uh, I read a real interesting article a while back about feral cats in Australia that have grown to, you know, like after a second or third generation, uh, have grown to just really abnormally large sizes. Um, They're genetically domestic cats, but they're, you know, three times the size of a common domestic now after a couple of generations of the wild. So there could be something to that. I guess my answer to that is similar to the Jaguar question is, well, every domestic cat is not black. Yeah. So where are the more commonly, you know, where, where's the variety? Where's the, where are the other, you know, cats, you know, color, different colored cats. And, but, you know, it's something to ponder on. And, and of course, I guess the possibility exists that there is a, a species of cat out there that we haven't identified yet. This seems on the surface to be the least likely uh, possibility, but, you know, I just don't know if you can completely discount it because, um, because like I said, people are adamant. They, like I said, people that will laugh at you about Bigfoot or some other kind of cryptid-type animal, will, will they'll go to the mat with you about you know, Black Panthers to them, you know, where I grew up, it's not considered anything unusual. It's just another animal. It's it's just, a, you know, it's just part of the, the fauna. It's it's nothing unusual. Uh, you don't see them every day, but people see them quite often. And, and that's it. And, and so they're shocked to find out that this is not a recognized animal. And I think further confusion comes from the term Black Panther itself. It's kind of a colloquialism, kind of a sort of a catch-all phrase for these large black cats. And 
people see him in the movies and they think that that's just a certain type of, of cat when in reality what they're looking at 99% of the time is a leopard. Have you done much research on a Native American legend with with the black cat? Not so much with the, with the cats, no. Um, that's that's an interesting thought, but um, with there being such a large population in Texas, especially, and I don't know if it's just because of our well relationship that wasn't so great when the two culture clash. I'm always fascinated by look up some random legend that you you know you hear about, and then mm-hmm. you know they almost have just about everything covered, and I just. Well, they do, and, and, but the thing about them, uh, to kind of come full circle here and, and kind of reconnect to the the Bigfoot wood ape uh, subject is, you go up in the Northwest, for example, and, and you will see these totems, um, and they'll have eagles and bears and wolves, and then they'll have this whistling wild man, Bigfoot-type, carving on the same totem. And and it's true that a lot of the tribes associated some sort of uh, spiritual significance to the animal um, that, or a power or an intelligence or something that that we know now that that doesn't necessarily, you know, exist, you know. Um, But the thing about it is they didn't imagine animals if that makes sense. They may have attributed some abilities to them that we've since, you know, found out they don't have, but they didn't make up animals. Uh, you know, okay, the, the eagle or the wolf or the coyote may not be the the creator, like in their legends, but the coyote, the wolf, and the eagle are real animals. There are no, uh, you don't see them just creating mythical animals that we don't recognize on their totems and in their glyphs and things that, that are out there. Uh, so when you see, um, you know, one of these apes, for lack of a better term, uh, included in their artwork going back hundreds of hundreds of years, you know, you have to wonder why would they make up just that one animal? You know, okay, they've got a picture of a beaver here. They've got a carving of a coyote, a wolf, a bear. And then they just decided to make up something, you know, just one, you know, animal. So that's always been something that, uh, again, kind of has me leaning toward something to this aspect. And and if they do um, have stories regarding these large, long-tailed black cats, then that I would feel the same way about it. Because they just, you know, they didn't make make up animals. They they sometimes attributed spiritual aspects to them, but they didn't make up the animal itself. That intrigues me. Yeah, and me too. And one final thing, uh, with the idea that like man's cockiness with uh, thinking that they know everything, one thing that we don't really realize is just how resilient wildlife can be. You know, if just mm-hmm. given a chance, my jaw nearly hit the floor when my mom was like, oh, you know, a couple of their friends are... They're going up to lake up in North Texas. There's some bald eagles nesting up there. When I went to Alaska, I was taking every picture I could of them because uh, I, I was essentially looking at some an endangered species, you know. Right, yeah. Well, And you're right. If, if given half a chance that they're much more resilient than we give them credit for. But 
but we have to give them that half a chance, you know. And, yeah, and, totally. And, and and that kind of gets back to to our group and what we're doing. Right. Uh, we take the conservancy part word that's part of our name very seriously, and we feel a very much a sense of urgency because more and more woodlands are they're gone every day and. Deforestation is a real problem. Loss of habitat's a real problem. And I don't think the wood ape, the Sasquatch, has, has much to worry about from hunters. I, I think if they did, we've had specimens stocked up like fire, you know, piled up like firewood a long time ago if, if, if a typical hunter was going to be a real threat to them. We'd know about it. We would know about it by now. You know, a lot of people think, well, if we prove them real, then bunch of yahoos are going to go out there and kill a bunch of them i don't think that's going to happen i don't i don't think that they're capable of doing it i think they're much too intelligent and, and elusive for that what is a threat to them is is when they no longer have anywhere to live a lot of the forests now are are, are, are second growth you know they've been replanted with slash pine and things like that they're sterile monocultural Mm-hmm. forests and they're not nearly as rich and they can't sustain nearly as much wildlife as a deciduous of mixed forests with hardwoods and such can and that's why we feel a sense of urgency because when when that's gone they'll be gone that that's what i believe and, and that's the threat and so that's why it's important that we we get one of these things and that's why it's important that we get them identified and we get them recognized because that's the only thing that's going to stop development. And it's a real concern. And and that's why we're doing what we do. We think in terms of the species as opposed to the individual. If we can take one specimen, that it could save all of them. And that's our goal is to save all of them in terms of the whole species. And, you know, every summer when we, revisit our study area, it just sickens you. It just makes you sick your stomach to, to see just in one one year wow, what's changed, what's been cut, what's been logged. You know, it's a real concern for us. And, and this is the most magnificent species on the planet as far as we're concerned. This would be the discovery, not just of the century, but of all time as, as far as I'm concerned. And for that not to happen because we just we eliminated all the habitat would be, it would just be appalling. Most people would never know, you know, because because we didn't get it done if, if that happened. But, you know, those of us who, who know, it would just be an awful thing to live with. You know, at least we're trying. That's kind of what drives us. That's awesome. What a pleasure it was to talk to you. For those of you out there that want to learn more, visit woodape.org. That is the home of the NAWAC. His name is Michael Mays. He's the Texas Cryptid Hunter. You can find him online under that website, texascryptidhunter.blogspot.com. For Christmas, check out Patty, a Sasquatch story, a gift for old and young alike. Again, thank you so much, Mike. Well, thank you very much. I enjoyed it quite a bit.